those of you that have been part of the church for, for a while, you know that last year, most of last year, I preached out of James chapter 1, and the series was called Dazzling Christianity, and we were trying to look at James encouraging the church into a wholeheartedness uh, in the relationship with Christ. We had to look at a whole, all of those great themes of joy and faith and, pa- and, and patient perseverance in James chapter 1. And then we got to James chapter 2 in about the end of October, and I was really, I was nervous because I knew what was coming in James chapter 2. And this is the verse that I was most nervous about, to preach about. And I was kind of relieved at the end of October and November that Christmas came because it gave me a little bit of a window just to go away and think about and pray into this verse that I'm going to preach this morning. This verse has disturbed me. It's not a comfortable verse. It's a very straight, blunt declaration by James. And uh, the title of my message this morning is God has chosen the poor. God has chosen the poor. And why that has disturbed me is because I know that I'm not, I am part of the rich of the world. This is the statistic. If you earn in your household $34,000 a year, right? $34,000, I'm not sure what the exchange rate is right now. It's probably about 26,000, 27,000 pounds. If your household earns that, you are in the top one percentile of the richest people in the world. Now, you might not feel rich, but that is the truth. And we always like to compare ourselves upwards, and, and then we think we don't have much. So when we hear of bankers getting multi-million pound bonuses and movie stars getting paid $4 million, $24 million a movie and... Football is getting obscene amounts of money to kick a ball. Then, then, you, then you feel somehow that you are poor. I want to tell you, we are rich. We are rich in the top one percentile of the world's richest people. I read somewhere else that if you can change your clothes every day and put on a different pair of socks and underwear and shirt, you are already in the wealthiest of the world. This is, this is the reality. And so... Into that context, that's why I've not looked forward to, to preaching this verse, because this is what James has to say in, in, in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, not, are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So Jesus, I pray that you'd help me to um, preach faithfully this morning. I, Holy Spirit, I pray that I would not try and do your work. I pray that I would not overstate things. I pray that I'd put no compulsion on anybody. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring conviction to us in only the way that you can, and that genuinely our lives will be transformed because of the power of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So like I said, I've been wrestling about this for a couple of months. I've been praying about it. I've talked a lot about it with Helen and with with the other guys. And uh, what is this verse really saying to us? 
I mean, the language is blunt. It's strong. And uh, I have to just say, some, I found some writing helpful. Um, Alec Moitia has been very helpful. His commentary, Michael Eaton, Artie Kendall. So I've read some of their stuff on this verse. And uh, I feel like God has started to give me some clarity around this. And, of course, the context of these verses is the first four that we looked at in, uh, in November of last year, which just said, when a rich man comes into your congregation, you don't give him a special seat. And then you, to a poor man, you say, oh, no, 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 you don't come and sit here with, with us. You go and sit at the back. And so basically what James is encouraging us is saying there's no discrimination in the church. There can be no discrimination on the basis of economy, race, culture, anything. The church is a place for all of God's people to come and to dwell. And so that's the context. And the, last, the, the context of these two verses is those first four verses which James just said there's no discrimination in the body of Christ don't go there. And we had a look at that before Christmas. And the first thing that I want to say out of this portion that makes, James makes clear against the context of those first four verses is that God sovereignly, in His sovereignty, God has chosen the poor in this world. And the phrase in this world is very, very important because it brings a context. He's, he's saying... Actually, I'm talking about this space-time world. I'm talking about this physical world. It's not just a spiritual kind of thing he's saying. He's saying, no, God has chosen some in this world, and this is what has disturbed me, is that he's saying that God has allowed for some in this world to be poor in the way that the world sees poverty, and those people are specially chosen because they are rich in faith. This, this is an extraordinary Verse. And so that phrase also sets apart what James is saying from what Jesus said in Matthew 5.3. Remember a couple of years ago we looked at the Beatitudes and Matthew 5.3 is, is the opening statement. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And basically what Jesus is saying in that portion is if you acknowledge your bankruptcy, your spiritual bankruptcy, then God can start to do something with you. If, you, if you've got no sense that you don't even need God in any way, it's very hard for God to move in your life. And so that's what, what, what Jesus is saying in that verse. So James is not quite saying the same thing. He's making it a, a physical thing. He's saying, no, the poor in this, in this world, the poor in this world, not just the poor in spirit, the poor in this world, God has chosen in a special way. And James, what he's saying follows on rather from what Jesus says in Luke 6.20, and Jesus there is praying for his disciples, and Luke 6.20 says this, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus there is not talking about being poor in spirit. He's talking about a very practical thing. He's saying, for those of you that are poor in the eyes of the world, who don't have much, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so James and Jesus in those two scriptures, are directly saying that those that are poor in the, world, in the way that the world sees poverty are chosen in a special way by God. We can't get away from it. It is uncomfortable, but that is what he's saying. They are specifically chosen. And therefore, if we dishonor the poor in any way as God's people, we are choosing a different kind of glory. We are choosing a different a frame of reference that is not God's heart and it's not, God, it's not God's mind for the world. 
So that's the first thing I'd like to discuss. The second thing I'd like to discuss is that James says, says it's the rich that oppress believers. And that's why I found it uncomfortable, because I am part of the rich. <laughs> and he says, no, actually, it's the rich that oppress believers. And how do they oppress believers? By using the legal system to drag Christians in and out of court, and in particular, to defame, to blaspheme the name of Jesus, by which we are chosen, by which we are saved. And so what does that mean? Can you see what I'm saying? These are not comfortable verses. These are difficult things to understand. And uh, I want to say there's two kinds of biblicism. Biblicism, one, is says I, I was part of a movement that kind of thought like this. Well, Jesus chose fishermen, and he chose uneducated people, so we just need to believe the Word. And we just believe the Word, and whatever the Word says, we believe. Now, now that is what I would call biblicism one. There's nothing wrong with that in one sense, although if you don't take the time to actually study, then some things that Jesus says can be difficult. (laughs) Because Jesus also says, if you love me, you must hate your parents. So what does Jesus mean by that? If I take it at face value, it means I I need to hate my parents? No, well, actually, the Scripture also says, uh, when we still honor the Ten Commandments, it says, actually, no, no, we must honor our parents so that it goes well with us. So uh, I don't believe the Scripture contradicts itself. So those kind of difficult sayings, what do they mean? And there's another kind of biblicism which I want to encourage you in, is that you actually do give time to study the Word and to see what other people have said over the centuries. I would call that biblicism too that recognizes there are some people that God has gifted in an extraordinary way to understand the world. And we need to, we need to take into account what they say. Why do they say that? Why did Luther say some stuff? Why did Calvin say some stuff? This is a different kind of biblicism. I'm not, I'm not negating biblicism one. I'm saying there's a deeper level that we also need to encounter, and I want to encourage you to study, not in an academic way, but in a Holy Spirit-led way, saying, God, what are you really saying? And we consider what other people have said, and why they've said it, and why they've wrestled over it for centuries and centuries. There's a reason for these things. And so, I've said already, but this, this chapter... James's language here is blunt. It is very, very strong. And uh, I find it disturbing, <laughs> quite frankly. And so, when we reflect back on chapter 1, verse 9, we, are, we already know where James's sympathies lie in terms of the rich and the poor. Remember, he kind of, he says to the poor, you know, you be elevated in your low position, and then he says to the rich man, he says, no, 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 you, 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 you rejoice in your low position. It's like he brings the rich guy down a peg or two, and he elevates the poor guy. Remember, we looked at that. And uh, later, we'll look in chapter 4, verse 13, he speaks about those that are just concerned about making money. And he says, uh, you know, you're foolish if you think, you say you're just going to go here one day and you're going to make loads of money. No, rather you should say, if God, if, if it's willing, if God, if God wills it, I, I will go and do that. But there can't be a presumption in us. And he talks about in chapter 5, verse, um, the first six verses, he talks about those that abuse money and use money to exploit other people. I mean, James has got a very, very um, a strong feeling about finances. And you know, I think why that is, is because he grew up in the household of Mary and Joseph. He grew up with Jesus, and perhaps he saw a carpenter that worked very, very hard with his hands, week after week. And somehow, I believe, James saw that in the, in the economies of the world, and in, in economic systems, it's often, often economies favor the rich and discriminate against the poor. 
I believe James knew that, and he saw that. And Helen challenged us last week about the clothes we wear and uh, the food that we eat that is so cheap because other people in other parts of the world are slaving away to make it possible. And I don't say that to put any guilt on anyone. And we've we've, we've, uh, had a look at our own lives and saying, God will help us to, to, to... to bring change. I mean, we, we, we live in the world and all our economies are connected and it's very complicated. I'm not saying it's an it's a, it's a easy, easy solution for any of us, but there is a real sense that the economies of the world favor the rich and discriminate against the poor. So this portion raises a number of basic questions that I'd like to try and encourage you to think about and to find answers as we go forward together. How are we to understand these words that James says? One. Is two. Is Jesus unconditionally on the side of the poor? Three. Are the rich by nature persecutors? <laughs> I mean, that's what he seems to be saying. The, the, the rich persecute the poor. Is that always true? I mean, is that always true? Are the rich always persecuting the poor? I mean, if that's true, then actually the rich man that he speaks about in verse Ten, if it's really true what James is saying, then it's an embarrassment to be, to be rich, surely, because God's chosen the poor. So what does it mean? Is God calling us as believers to take sides on every social issue on the assumption that the poor are always right and the, the rich are always wrong? Is James... Um, what about then about people that James mentions as he goes on, in, as, as you read further. In fact, in, in, in James chapter 2, verse 21, he speaks of Abraham, the father of our faith, who we know from Genesis 13, 2, is very wealthy. But here, James actually speaks of him with approval. So why does James do that? Why does he speak favorably about a wealthy man called Abraham, the father of our faith, if God is against the rich? He also speaks, uh, we know Job, chapter 1. Job is extraordinarily wealthy. What about the rest of the evidence of the Bible that seems to contradict what James says? What about Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy guy that is spoken about in in Matthew chapter 27, that is there in the whole process of of, um, what happens to Jesus? What about the proconsul Sergius Paulus in Acts chapter 13, who's extraordinarily wealthy? What about Levi, the tax collector? What about Zacchaeus? How do they all fit into this if, if, this, is what, if this is really what James is saying? Are those cases not sufficient to prove that Jesus doesn't really have an axe to grant with the rich per se? You hear where I'm going with this? What about the words of Paul? New Testament, when Paul got it, I think Paul got it right when he said in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were rich, he says. I think Paul has got it right. He's kind of making, he's kind of heading in the right direction. I was just, uh, just uh, I forgot to say this just now, but you know, we're talking about this kind of basic biblicism that ignores um, just takes things at face value. You know, it is true that that uh, that um, that Jesus did choose fishermen, but you know, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, who was a highly, highly educated man. 
The whole of the Psalms were written by David, who was a highly, highly educated man. Most of the New Testament was written by highly educated men. Paul has the brightest mind of, of any of those that wrote Scripture. Luke was a doctor. Let's not, let's not be silly. Of course, God uses people with brains as well as people who are uneducated. You hear what I'm saying? Okay? So, I believe what James is saying, I believe he learned it from Jesus. I believe he learned it from Jesus, and I believe the Scripture confirms, the rest of the Scripture confirms what James is saying here. And uh, Alex Moita, New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, in many situations, there are indeed two sides of the story. There are two sides of the same coin. But one side so far outclasses the other that it merits stating it as if it was in a class of its own. You hear what he's saying? He's saying this. And I want to refer again to that um, difficult thing that, that Jesus said in Luke 14. He said, if you to love me, then you to hate your parents and um, you, you take up your cross and you to follow me. If you go and read Luke 14, 26. Does Jesus really mean that we are to hate our parents? Of course he doesn't mean that. Of course not. What he's saying is, when you love me with all of your heart, every other life, every other love in your life, it's like, that is like, it's, it's in a different class altogether. By comparison, the way that you love me and you give yourself to me, it's like, it seems like you're hating everybody else because you love me so much. That's what he's saying. It's like our love for him is, is in a class of, a different class altogether compared to earthly love with parents and friends and family. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying we hate our parents. He's saying my love for you is, is actually, our love for him is in a completely different category altogether from any other love that we know or experience in our lives. That's what he is saying. And so when we, uh, when we apply that kind of logic to what, J- what James is saying, it starts to become clear. James is expressing a general truth, not a, an invariable truth. The Lord does not only choose poor people. And it's not the rich that only persecute people and blaspheme the name of Jesus. But what he is saying, in general, it is, it is true, and for the most part it is true. That's what he's saying. And I believe the language in the story of redemption bears that out. Why do I say that? Well, the most obvious example I can think of is the Exodus. God chooses for himself a slave people. A people that were oppressed, in bondage, persecuted, pushed down by others. And he chooses those enslaved people and he says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to, you're going to become my people. And the language of the Old Testament is we are, the, the, the people of Israel are God's chosen ones, his called ones, his, his own people. He makes them a people all of his own. He chooses the despised of the world and he says, there's a special place for you in my heart. And I believe that God wasn't even motivated to choose Israel because he saw them suffering in Egypt. He was motivated simply because he loved them. Simply because he loved them. And I believe written into the divine nature of God and of who he is, is this thing of his concern for the downcast and the oppressed and the broken. And by taking the initiative with Israel and making them a people of his own, God starts to show us what he's really like. 
He really is a God who loves the broken, who loves the lost, who, who loves the poor, who loves the oppressed, those that are despised by the world. He has a special place in his heart. And every one of us has been chosen because he's loved us. Okay? And so it is generally true. It is generally true that God's people are predominantly less off, less well off than, than people. You know, this is the thing that I have... Um, well, I, I reject the prosperity gospel, which says that God actually wants you to, you know, that God wants you to be wealthy. I don't see that in the scripture. And if that was true, the wealthiest people in the world would be Christians. And most of the wealthiest people in the world are not remotely Christian. This doesn't hang together logically. It's, it's nonsense. <laughs> Sorry. You know, what I, you know what I felt convicted of this week? I felt sometimes when I preach, I state things too strongly, and then I do the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. I'm trying to, and I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I, I want to state things strongly, but God has to do a conviction by His Spirit in your, in your life and in my life. Isn't that true? And so, if you don't share my thoughts about prosperity gospel, well, that's okay. But that's my conviction. I believe God wants us to be conduits of grace. And as we have freely received His grace, we freely give it on. And that includes money. It's the only reason He wants us to be, to, for us to be wealthy is so we can pass it on to others. If we are hoarding it for ourselves, I don't think it's a good idea at all. So, I want to point you to the example of Jesus. Jesus, what does it say? The Lord of all glory, who was rich in every way. What did He do? He lay aside all of His glory, and He humbled Himself, and He made Himself poor so that you and I could be rich. So we can try and sidestep the bluntness of what James is saying by saying, well, you know, James is only expressing a general truth and, and like I've tried to illustrate. But you know, the problem is that the Bible doesn't do that very often. <laughs> the Bible doesn't let us get away that easily. The Bible doesn't so overstate one position that it completely overwhelms another. The Bible doesn't do that. Very seldom does. There's no escape hatch here. We can't just come conveniently get out of it. I'm saying to you this morning, if we are genuinely going to follow Jesus, the Lord of all glory, who for what was lying ahead of him forsake, forsook all of the glory that was his in heaven, and he came and he humbled himself and he lived among us and he made himself poor that we might become rich. If we are going to truly follow Jesus, who was consistently on the side of the oppressed and the poor and the demon-possessed and the, and the prostitute and the tax collector, he was consistently, you cannot read the Gospels without coming to that conclusion, he was on the side of those people. He, he loved those people, the religious he had a problem with. If we're going to follow Jesus, then to identify with Him in every way is truly to take on that heart of God and to live that ourselves. I can't come to any other conclusion. And Deuteronomy 10, 17 expresses it perfectly. It says this, The Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial. He doesn't show favoritism. He takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the traveler, the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then the encouragement comes to us. Love the sojourner, therefore. Love the traveler, therefore. 
for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What is it? It's, 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 it's the story of, of, of redemption in a nutshell. It's saying, just as you were enslaved in Egypt and you were set free, and God loved you perfectly while you were in Egypt, in the same way you love those that are still in Egypt. You love the lost and the broken, and you help to be someone who takes people out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of darkness into light, and you live your life for others. You live unselfishly. You live your life giving yourself away to the poor, the lost, the broken, wherever you find them. That's to be a person with the heart of God. And so, I was stunned this week where I read that until quite recently in the history of our church, the the Church of England here, up until about 150 years ago, the churches were still organized on a pew system where you bought your pew. I didn't even realize this. And so, you had, for example, the squire had a massive, massive enclosure that was his alone. And he would go there with his family because he paid for it. And then you would have a pew that you bought, you rented for the year, and you paid the church to sit there. And it would have your name on it. And then you had poor seats. And they were literally seats for the poor at the back of the church where no one could afford to pay. The poor sat at the back. I was stunned. Doesn't that stun you? And I'm not angry. I'm just completely stunned that it could be in the church. And here James says, if you do that, you've become a judge with evil in your heart. And yet our churches have been organized like that for centuries. Oh boy, God help us. How we need His Spirit, eh? And I'm saying that living us, living out the life of God in this way, by caring for the poor, is truly to become dazzling Christians. Dazzling Christianity. That's what this, this whole series has been about. And so I want to just conclude by looking at what I believe the Bible means by generous, unselfish lives. Living for others. Biblical generosity. And here I found Tim Keller's thoughts particularly helpful. I want to start at this place. Firstly, the Bible says that God has poured out His mercy and His grace generously upon us through Jesus Christ so that we can be justified by grace. That's what we celebrate, isn't it? Titus 3.6. This is not, we, we don't strive for salvation. This is a gift of God and it's His generosity towards us. So why are mercy and forgiveness described as God's generosity to us? Well, I put it the answer to you is quite simple. Because God is under no obligation to give you and I anything. <laughs> we Remember we looked at James, verse, verse it said, Every good gift comes to us from the Father of lights, who gives generously without a shadow of turning. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Every good thing that comes to us is given to us by God, generously. He doesn't take it back. He pours it out upon us. And so God is under no obligation to give us anything, but he, because He loves us, He does. And that's why mercy and forgiveness are a generous gift from God. And so, actually, our sin has disqualified us from getting anything from God anyway, any of His blessings. But uh, He still chooses to give us because He loves us. He still pours out His mercy and the riches. That's why the Bible uses those words, lavish grace, the riches of His mercy, the riches of His forgiveness. He pours it out upon us. He's generous with all of us. He pours out rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, etc., etc., in many scriptures. But I also want to say to you, in James chapter 1, it's not only in terms of forgiveness and salvation that 
God is generous to us. It's also in terms of ministry that He's generous to us. Why do I say that? Because remember, when um, we looked at the wisdom that God has given to all of us, if any of you lacks wisdom, and uh, you, you realize you need wisdom in life, what does it say? It says, all you need to do is ask God, and He gives generously to all. Without finding fault with anyone, He pours out wisdom upon all of us. And so in terms of God's ministry to us, He's also generous. He's generous in His forgiveness, but also He builds people up. He, he, he gives gifts, grace gifts to all of us um, without, without um, judging one or the other. He just pours out. He's not stingy. He just pours out grace gifts upon people without finding fault with anyone. He's extraordinary, God. He's, he's, he's so unlike us, isn't He? He doesn't say, well, the good people are going to get good gifts and bad people, they're not going to get any gifts at all. He just unmerited favor. Calling and gifts of God are without repentance. His God is amazing. So I want to say to you that being generous, living a generous life is a matter of the Spirit of God. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit if we are generous people. Isaiah 32, verse 8, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse. It says, the generous make generous plans, and by generous deeds they stand. I had a look this morning when I was praying, and the NIV and the ESV, they use the word, not generosity, but the root word is actually is noble-hearted. So some translations say, the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. There's a, there's a nobility in people that are like God that are always looking out for others, that are always trying to lift others up, that are are trying to empower others, eager to look out for others, eager to bless, eager to serve. This this is an extraordinary generosity that only can come by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, Titus says in uh, Paul writing, and Titus says that uh, the ultimate generosity was the cross, wasn't it? That God poured out himself for us. And uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he extravagantly gave his absolute best, his son, to us, an undeserving people. This is, the, this is the wonder of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, as we stand at the beginning of this year, I want to encourage you into a noble-hearted, extraordinary, gospel-inspired inspired generosity. And as we stand looking forward, it's already the second half of, of, of February, I know, but as we, at the beginning of the year, looking forward, I, I've just again been struck by the absolute need for noble-hearted, all-round generosity. And I'm so encouraged just to see something of that already in the life of the church. Different kinds of ministry groups, the kids' ministry uh, life groups, guys getting together to serve in terms of worship and on the sound desk and audio-visual and people hosting the meetings. There's already an extraordinary generosity that I see in spirit in the life of this church, and that is absolutely wonderful. People are giving their time, their energy to becoming trained, and they're also taking steps to making this church more fully a place where every person is a minister, every member is a minister. You want to ask me what it means to be a member of Forest Town Church? I want to say this to you. Part of membership of this church is that you are a minister somewhere, that you are ministering. You're not just coming to receive blessing each week, but you are receiving to, be, to become a conduit of blessing that you can be blessing to others. That's, we are all ministers. That's part of membership of this church is that you are giving yourself as well as receiving from the Holy Spirit. And I think it's especially true in any church 
And especially as churches get bigger and bigger, that people can default simply to come to meetings to receive ministry. But I want to encourage you that as we go forward, every kind of area in the life of the church that is expression of participation in some kind of small group or prayer group or building blocks or ladies' ministry or whatever it is, when you get part involved with that, that's training yourself to be a minister, to be a giver, not just a receiver. And that's the only reason I want to encourage you to be involved somewhere this year, to connect into something in the life of the church where you can serve and give yourself away. Conduits of grace. You can't store grace. Grace is not a dam that you can store up. You can only give it away. That's it. It's not like you can store grace for a rainy day. (laughs) Now it's my rainy day. I'm going to take all the grace. No, no. It's like a river. It flows. And when you need it, it's there. And so let me encourage you with that. And I want to say, there's another kind of generosity that we're going to need as we go forward as a church over the next few years. We've made an exciting transition in the last three years. Part of that was getting this building and you know all the stuff that we've been through in the last three years. It's been exciting. And um, I want to say as we, we more fully move into the fullness of what God has for us, and there's a new thing that God is doing with this church, and it's very exciting. As, as we move more fully into that, we are going to need another kind of generosity. Because you see, whenever there's transition, there's change. And some people, any kind of change is experienced as loss. You hear what I'm saying? As the church changes, some people can experience that change as loss. For example, uh, we've seen many people relocate, especially since the, since the uh, recession hit. People have gone to Australia, to Canada, uh, Hong Kong. Dear friends. Dear friends. Well, that's part of the change but you can experience it as loss. I want to encourage you not to experience it as loss. The only thing that is going to help you to get through that is a generosity of spirit because God is adding many more. And what we need is a generosity of spirit that the people who have been here for many years embrace new people and new friendships and new things that God is doing. It's generosity of heart. So I want to encourage you with that. The answer is a generosity of spirit. The answer is, I believe where the gospel is preached, it should create a community which, in which people repent easily, where people are humble and joyful, and they forgive and embrace one another easily. That's evidence of the gospel. That's evidence of forgiveness. Just remember, uh, when you feel it, finding it hard to forgive someone, and I've, I've had, spoke, Helen challenged me this week about some people in my life that I need to forgive. I want to say this to you. Just remember the example of Jesus, that before they even crucified him, he had already forgiven them. He said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they do. They are selfish. They are just thinking about themselves. They are just, the, 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 he, he, Jesus realized that, and he said, I forgive them before they even do it. Who are we to judge anyone? Who are we to withhold forgiveness from anyone? This extraordinary grace that we've received, it must flow through us into everyone that we touch. And so, a generous spirit. And so we need generous generosity on all fronts. And of course, that includes giving, sacrificial giving, stewardship of our finances. And I want to just to remind you as we come to the end of this financial year, that as usual, Forest Town Church is dependent entirely for its budget on what is given by the people of the, of the church. We do not have, we're not part of a denomination. We do not get any money from a central fund. So I want to encourage you that as we look forward into this new financial year, that you 
in your own life, review how you've been giving and what you can give and how you can increase your giving over the course of the year. And remember, Paul was talking about finances when he said, if we, if we sow sparingly, we will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. There's an extraordinary thing that God does. And I don't believe in a cause and effect kind of thing. I, don't, I believe personally, I believe that tithing is pre-gospel. I believe that tithing, not that we don't give 10%. If you're hearing now that I'm saying we don't give 10%, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. I'm saying that the punishment of not giving under the law is removed from you. Your washing machine will not break and your car will not break if you do not give. God loves you regardless of whether you give or not. Should you give at least 10%? Yes, I believe we should be super tithers. We should be those that give way beyond 10% out of generosity because we have received grace and our money is simply God's wealth to us so we can administrate it on His behalf. Is that clear? So don't anyone say, I don't believe in giving. I absolutely believe in giving. I don't believe you're punished because God is merciful. Should you give? Absolutely. Should you give generously? Absolutely. Should you give at least 10%? Absolutely. Become a super tither. Not just a schnoop, I'll give my little 10%. No, I'll give my maximum that I can. Generously. Okay. And so, I want to say that I think even financial giving is not, not really even the most strategic kind of giving, because I believe this, that when people truly experience other kinds of generosity in the church, that transform them. When they experience love and peace and joy and power by the Holy Spirit and hospitality by God's people, the automatic natural response is to give money. It's, it's like, it's just simple, it's the overflow. Okay seems quite natural when you're experiencing all those other things. So then, I want to encourage you as my last concluding thing, this statement from 2 Corinthians 9.15, where Paul encourages us and he says, let us thank God for this inexpressible gift. Isn't that beautiful language? This inexpressible gift, the grace of God to us in Jesus. Let's thank God for the inexpressible gift of the grace of God to us in Jesus. And let's respond because of that inexpressible gift of grace to us. And so therefore, our time, our talent, our money, and giving ourselves for the poor, and giving ourselves for the lost and the broken, let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to that as we move into this year because of that great thing that has been poured out upon our lives, the grace of God. Amen.